Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we always start by asking what are you thinking? And this week we have the great pleasure of speaking to Michelle and Hazel from VetSpace Ireland. They are our first uh, Irish guests on the podcast and we are so excited to chat to them today. We're also going to be finishing off our clinical discussion with the amazing Rob White uh, about systemic shunts. Just to introduce myself, my name is Scott. I am one of the founders of VTX and I'm a specialist in small animal internal medicine. And I am joined, as always, by Karen. Oh my God, all y'all sound like you really know what you're doing. We haven't a clue. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, oh my God, we don't. We're going to dive into that. No, we don't. Listen, well, no, I don't. Karen does. So actually, the, the, the interesting thing, Karen worked in uh, radio for a while. So she has a background with... Um, this sort of stuff um you know so that does help we need a karen michelle yes badly (laughs) everyone needs a karen we haven't a clue we've all the gear but we don't know how to use any of it and we're always we're always buying random stuff off amazon and hopefully someday we'll buy the right thing do you know i love it i love it um we're so excited to have uh, michelle and hazel with us today um for multiple reasons uh i think um First of all, because you guys have your own podcast, and I think that's a really uh, cool thing for us to be able to talk about. And second of all, you're from Ireland, which is also very cool. And the first time that we've had Irish guests on the podcast, so that is definitely some sort of bizarre (laughs) claim to fame that you can use however you like. Um, The one thing, and we'll delve into this a little bit more, the one thing that I really want to get into is, so I really wanted Karen and I to get one of your hats to wear during the recording, but we did, <laughs> I'll explain that later, Karen, but we did manage to do that. So we can maybe rectify that n- nudge, nudge, wink, wink at the end. We'll definitely send you a hat. Oh, good. Thank you very much. That's what I was going for. Well, let's see how the interview goes first and then you can decide whether you still send me the hat or not. Um, so let's just start, I think, by you guys introducing yourselves. So um, Michelle, I don't, I don't know if we can start by you just giving us a little bit of an idea about your veterinary background and where you're up to now. Yeah, okay, so um, I'm Michelle, I'm one half of VetSpace Ireland and basically I started my veterinary career a very long time ago uh, in the early 2000s and I practiced as veterinary nurse for nine or ten years and then I worked in veterinary wholesale, veterinary pharmaceutical and I in the last year and a half, I've started working kind of in veterinary practice management and business development. I'm working as a practice business coordinator, I suppose, is, is my actual title. Uh, so it's a small practice um, at the moment. So it's we're all a hands on team. So everybody does everything, which I actually quite like because I get to still stroke a dog and cuddle a kitten. Um, and then obviously it's a new it's a practice that's growing and developing quite quickly so my aim obviously is to grow it from a business and a clinical point of view and where are you geographically so i'm in county tipperary which is in the middle of the south i suppose so i'm not quite as south as hazel is but i would be in munster um so i would be maybe i suppose i'm an hour and a half from dublin heading towards cork which is south and then I'm an hour to Cork, which is the most south, which is where Hazel is. So I'm kind of okay. in the middle of the south. In the middle of the south. I mean, that makes complete sense. <laughs> um, so <laughs> to someone who doesn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so then that moving on then to Hazel. So um, so you are the other half of um, 
I don't know whether the, maybe the better or the worst half. I don't know. We can talk about that. Oh, definitely the worst half. Oh, no, no. That's not <laughs> oh, true. <yeah. laughs> Michelle is the brains and the, the she's the technology expert. And I'm, I just kind of ring Michelle, anything I need to do this week, Michelle? Or how do you do it? Um, but no, we, we bounce ideas off each other. But I think Michelle is definitely, um, she's a lot of the, the, the brain power behind uh, Vets Face Ireland but we, we work great as a team yeah really enjoy I really enjoy being part of it yeah so um so that and I think that really comes across so tell us a little bit about your veterinary background then yeah sure so I am from Cork um Michelle kind of wishes she's from Cork but you know can't always have everything but it's it's yeah I live in the very 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 south of Ireland um so it's a real uh I suppose I'm a farm vet myself. So I qualified in, in Nottingham in 2013. So off I went and my merry way, my dad thought I might last about a week over there. And um, yeah, so spent six years in Nottingham, made loads of friends and then came back and worked in Kerry as a mixed practitioner. And I spent a year and a half there in the beautiful Killarney and it was lots of beautiful lakes and mountains. And then I moved to West Cork, which is also very beautiful. And I worked in more dairy practice there and did a little bit of small animal as well. And then um, that was two and a half years. And that's kind of where maybe I, my love of dairy work started. And I also kind of came involved with farmers talks and doing that kind of thing. And then I uh, moved to Abbeville, which is in the center of Cork City, but there's branches in uh, outside of Cork in the suburbs as well. And um, yeah, we've um, 12 vets and we, I, I am um, part of the large animal team. And yeah, sometimes we they kind of don't, people don't know there's a whole large animal side of, of Abbeville because it's in the city. But yeah, we're an unusual practice that we work, um, we're based in the city, but we actually, there's farms all around the Cork City that you don't even know about. Um, so I'm the vet for those farms. So that's uh, generally, and then I have a, a blog as well on Instagram, uh, Vet on the Move, um, which I've kind of grown for the last three years. And I really enjoy kind of showing what I do every day. And it's given me a lot of opportunities um, kind of, you know different like communication wise and and promotions and yeah so probably why Michelle and I met really because she was looking for someone to to um be her buddy in uh, Vet Space Ireland so so that and that, so that brings us nicely onto this so so one of the main things obviously we want to talk about is Vet Space Ireland and and make sure that we well first of all I suppose understand really what it is so I wonder if we can start then Michelle just by talking about just telling people what this this amazing thing actually is um okay well I guess initially our main our main idea was to start a podcast okay and that was our idea like back in last January so um I thought Hazel would be really good like I want like I had kind of had a bit of a friendship with Hazel on Instagram well she as she does with the other 13,000 followers she has but um (laughs) just drop that in there yeah <laughs> my god yeah um but like and I just always really liked her approach to everything um which is really important in veterinary in Ireland nowadays 
Um, and I said, look, what do you think about doing this? I'd really like to do this. There's nothing like it in Ireland. And she's like, love to. So that's kind of where we started with an idea. So we built the whole thing from scratch. You know, I just so we built the brand. We came up with the name. We designed everything. So we were going to start with a podcast and we got all the gear and we said, this is what we're going to do. And we initially thought that people would come to us or we would go to people. Um, and this was January 2020. And then pandemic hit and everyone was locked down and we, we do you know what we started doing more in social media so we kind of adapted quite quickly and we got a really you know we got a lot of interaction from people on social media really quickly so we started doing Instagram lives and then we started running kind of more we kind of put the podcast on the back burner and we ran with what we had and we started doing things like new grad month you know vets get physical um month like so we came up with loads of campaigns and we, and we ran loads of things around um it but so basically what vet space ireland is is it's i suppose it's an online community for all veterinary professionals and i think the aim our our our, our tagline is entertain inform engage inspire so we want to, you know, entertain, we want to be able to inform. So by education, by talks, by whatever that might end up to be, um, we want to engage. So we want to get people out, we want to meet new people and we want to meet the likes of you guys and everyone else who's been on our podcast and, um, and inspire. And we really want to inspire everybody to, I think something that's very important for Hazel and I's well-being in general, when it comes to the veterinary professional, it's a huge issue, um, like, especially in Ireland, our veterinary, there's a huge disparity in veterinary in Ireland in, from mixed practices to large animal practices to companion animal practices and depending on where they're based. So if they're urban, they tend to be a bit more progressive and have better work-life balance and better rotas and then the more rural again it's back to not much of a life so we are a bit behind in that stage so we want to just have conversations with people to say that you know what it's absolutely okay to not want to be on call five nights a week um because there's a bit of a culture in Ireland amongst older generation where they're like Jesus young vets today they don't want to work <laughs> No, but that's I've heard that said. You know, they're like, oh, they don't know what work is. I was on my own in practice for thirty years, and I was on call every night. And no, you're brilliant. Here's your medal. That's not happening anymore. (laughs) It's so funny because we've we've we. I think last week, Car, we had. I didn't do that because I mean we had the same conversation, but I didn't do that brilliant Irish thing that you just did there with that (laughs) whatever. I don't even know if you're going to try. But we had it almost exactly that same, this badge of honour thing with this yeah. mentality, this badge of honour mentality. We've talked about that kind of yes. lot. What what I think just, I just wanted to, I, I don't want to forget anything you're saying, but what I love there is actually there's huge parallels between what Karen and I have done and the, the kind of journey we've been on and actually what you've just described. Because we started at a very similar time doing the podcast and actually our initial plan was to go out in the road as well. So we imagined it being kind of quite kind of here, Karen and I are in the car. And now we get to the vet practice and we talk to X, Y and Z and kind of, you know, and that just went down the pan because of, of, of obviously coronavirus. And so we, I think, very quickly adapted as well. And actually the other interesting thing I wanted to say was initially, I mean, I'm very clinical, you know, so obviously I, I do most of my kind of role is, is clinical, but actually very quickly. And if you listen to the podcast from the beginning, very quickly the conversation yeah we do have a clinical segment but actually the majority of our conversations about non-clinical stuff you know because actually that's more interesting in many ways to people 
and people have some really interesting stories to tell you know and 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 so i've enjoyed that sort of part of it i think uh you know much more um so um hazel as far as kind of um you know that that journey that you've been on with the podcast and is is what you thought your podcast is what you thought it was going to be what it's turned out to be do you think it's kind of has it gone in the direction you imagined or in a, a totally different direction i i think it's actually gone in pretty much maybe michelle you might disagree with me but, but i think we always had it wasn't going to be a clinical podcast it was going to be very much about stories very much about demonstrating that other vets that might be very high profile vets in Ireland that everyone knows actually go go through the same things that you know maybe not so high profile go through and you know they had the same difficulties when they started out and you know what journey they came on like oh you know oh I became a small animal surgeon but oh actually went off to Thailand for a couple of months and didn't work and, and then I came home and I went you know and I just I think it's very interesting how these very very successful vets might have had a little bit of topsy-turvy at the start or you know they go through different things and that was kind of our aim to bring the faces of Irish veterinary more you know more approachable and also to show their stories behind you know who they are now and yeah we kind of we, we I suppose we were a little bit reluctant on going down the zoom route because we were like, oh, this pandemic will be over soon. We'll get back. We'll get back into the office and into maybe somewhere like, you know, there's Republic of Work in Cork you can use and things like, we had all these big, big plans. So then I think we had to bite the bullet in October last year and was like, no, we need to just, everyone else is doing it now. We just need to get going. And in fairness, we didn't need all the mics and the sound buffers mm. and everything else that we bought. Um, but <laughs> a house full of sound buffers with no, no like, use for them. I mean, we've, we've got all the gear too. Like, <laughs> Oh, nice. That's a nice mic. A little, a little behind the scenes secret. We take photographs with all this gear on us, but we actually take it off we don't, we don't know how to use it <laughs> i absolutely love that they look class expensive promotion <laughs> i love it um so here's one of the things you said there and actually i was listening to i can't remember which episode it was of yours and i, I think um i'll need to follow you on instagram i didn't know you had a, a, a you had a whole other instagram thing um but the you were sort of saying about your portrayal of the way that your veterinary life is on instagram is um potentially sometimes quite positive and that's not a bad thing you know but actually you were sort of speaking about how you were conscious about that and the fact that it was important that you didn't necessarily misrepresent what the whole job was about is that is that right yeah so that would be one thing that i'm very conscious of at the beginning I, I, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing with with my Instagram page and what, where I was going with it. And then I suppose, you know, there's good and bad days. And sometimes you just don't want to go on camera when you're having a bad day. And sometimes I might wait a day or two and then come on and be like, look, I had a really bad day two days ago and something went wrong. And I don't know, has anyone else had the same opinion or same thing happened to them and yeah like I think Instagram in general is you just have to take it with a pinch of salt there could be a lot of things going on behind the scenes um that you don't know about but on vet space then I think we're a little bit more open and we we like to bring things up that mightn't be 
um you know a little bit more taboo maybe and and yeah ask the ask the hard hitting questions and what do people want to change in practice and what do people not like about their jobs and um the VCI have just relied the veterinary council in Ireland um released a survey a mental health survey um about a month ago Michelle and it was very detailed um so it really went through every single aspect of um veterinary and how you feel about it and everything so we're really looking forward to seeing what the results of that are and I think that's going to be a big moment in Irish veterinary um, when that when they when they publish those results. So, yeah. Yeah, because just to add to that, sorry, there's never been on the mental health thing. There's there's so much research and, and surveys and studies in the UK, uh, the States and Australia, but absolutely none in Ireland. So this will be the first. Um, so it'd be really, really interesting to see what that says. Yeah, it's funny, actually, you know, when I'm listening to your podcast and it, it you know, you speak, I forget that you're, you know, this, this sort of separate country, like it doesn't, it's a weird thing because you're just there, you know, I, you know, we can see you some days, you know, <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> but it's funny how, cause obviously, you know, your, your legislation and everything will be very different. So all of these things will be on this kind of slightly, totally different um, platform. And even you talking about, you know, not the RCVS, but your own sort of uh, governing body, you know, it's just, um, I, I suppose if you don't think about it, it maybe, yeah, it's not obvious. So what would you say? So I think you've, you've had all these kind of conversations about, um, about, you know, various different things with all these kind of very brilliant um, vets uh, in Ireland, mainly, I think. Um, so Michelle, can you think of kind of what, maybe the biggest lesson that you have learned from speaking to people across these different episodes? I guess for me, one of the biggest things I've learned is, well, I love talking to people and I just love hearing people's stories and I'm genuinely interested, you know? Um, you can sit me down beside anyone at a dinner table and I'll buffle the head off them. Um, but I'll genuinely, you know, I just, I'm genuinely interested. But one thing I have learned is, I guess just to kind of backtrack for a second I suppose one of the reasons why I wanted to do this as well is I had my I was very unwell a few years ago with mental health myself and I was working for DECRA at the time a veterinary pharmaceutical company and I just remember when I went back to work and I went back out in the road and I met a lot of my clients and who are vets in practice and some of them who I'd know quite well and I found it very difficult to not they're like oh you've been off for a while and are you well now and what happened to you and are you okay and I felt it very difficult to say oh I was sick or I had whatever so I just kind of I can't really lie like I'm really bad at that so I was just like look had a bit of a nervous breakdown you know or whatever and I was really honest about it and I was so surprised the amount of people that said to me oh my god the exact same thing happened to me two years ago the exact same thing happened to me three years ago or whatever and so that was one of the things and I thought you know what this every this because I at, when you're unwell like that you think you're the only person and you're mental and the lads with the white coats are going to turn up any day and then you realize actually no it happens to everyone I was just working too hard and not looking after myself um so that was one of the things and I thought you know what it's really nice to have these conversations with people and as Hazel said one of the things I have learned the most is we always uh, we have a format of questions and we always ask people what's your your best piece of advice to new grads or anybody coming out and they always say slow down take the time enjoy the little things like we really get that a lot and yeah and I always have to I find you know when it gets really busy at work as we all know like our clinic has been bananas this week and I found myself even getting a bit 
kind of crazy again I'm like no but I just need to take a step back it's just really busy week and it's kind of a mantra now that I use all the time and I'm like do you know what yeah slow down do you know take your time and enjoy it um so apart from the odd really really crazy day like I am really 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 enjoying my job at the minute even in the busy days do you know what I mean like you know there's obviously the days where lots of things you know like two weeks ago it was a particularly bad week and we we put a lot of pets into body bags you know and I find that really hard and I was just like god this is such a grim week like I just really felt it and really good clients and we all know like it's just not nice um but apart from those days I'm really really enjoying my job and that's because I'm sticking that mantra in I'm like isn't this great look at this who else gets to meet all these lovely people and these lovely pets and talk about what we're going to learn next and what we're going to add into the practice next you know so I've really taken that on as a big mantra and that's come solely from all the people we've oh, we've wow. spoken to yeah no, and it's, it's interesting isn't it because I think there are you know very much we've experienced that same thing very consistent messages and I think it's nice when actually you find that everyone's really ultimately singing from the same uh, hymn sheet we just need to speak about it and then we all realize we're actually all in a very similar boat and um, so Hazel the same question to you then I suppose just is there a kind of standout thing for you as far as kind of a uh, something that, that that having conversations on the podcast has taught you yes I think um I think there was one well one particular thing was you know kind of following on from Michelle with slowing down was don't forget why we why we became vets and take time to think about why you enter this profession and if something isn't right try and fix it you know don't just sit back and and let it take over another thing for me would be that um, we've interviewed quite a few large animal vets which is quite nice to um to get their perspective as well and i'm a large animal vet myself and just even the springtime over here in in Ireland is really busy because we have all spring calving cows so we don't have an all-year-round calving so we have a very seasonal madness which can be really difficult on one's mental health and it can be really exhausting you could be on call a couple of nights a week weekends you could have all-nighters and you're back in work the next day and it really is a part of veterinary in Ireland that I hope changes eventually but because of the nature of the farming here it's not going to be easy to change but there is you know there's practices joining in together there's practices getting bigger and the road is getting better but just to hear other vets perspectives on how they deal with spring and, you know, just saying, oh yeah, look, you know, we just take one day at a time and you know, just the stories and everything that comes out of a busy spring as well. I just, yeah, it was just very relatable. And I think a lot of Irish vets do large animal and it's yeah. nice to get that perspective. <laughs> I, I've been on a couple of podcasts yeah. where I've been the first um, farm animal vet to come on after a lot of small animal vets and it is it is a it's very different sometimes to small animal um veterinary even though we're all as you said singing from the same hymn sheet and we need to all unite but it's it's nice to get get the stories from people that relate to you as well so we need to get more equine vets on now that's our next mission is to tick that box <laughs> i'm here to tell you that you are absolutely categorically the first large animal vet that has been on this podcast and actually one of the things that i got as a as a very small animal vet you know listening to your podcast i was like are they all large animal vets where are all the small animal vets like what as in you know because it, it you know it, yeah well but yeah but equally when, when karen and i started this out the people that came on the podcast were my pals you know that 
because that's just yeah. like who am I going to ask oh the people I know and it's only really through Instagram that we have met other people who are in other countries and do other things and so I don't really have any friends that are large animal vets because I wasn't friends with them at vet school <laughs> so <laughs> I avoided that no I'm joking I didn't you're an odd body. <laughs> yeah <laughs> So it's, you know, it's, it was so interesting because it's such, you know, there's there's a real kind of um, real difference there. Um, Michelle, as far as then, you know, you sort of talked about change, I think, which is really interesting. And the fact that the profession sounds like in Ireland, you're you're making kind of roads into doing things maybe a bit better and not being on call 365 days a year. If you were to, and again, probably through your experience, not only your own experience in the profession, but your experience through the, the podcast, if you were to choose one thing that you think sort of a real tangible thing that, that the profession needs to get do better or, 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 or change, what would that what would that be? Um, for me in Ireland, it would be um, the, the veterinary nursing profession as a whole so we have huge issues with that um and the problem with that is we have more nurses leaving the profession than we do joining and veterinary can't develop without nurses right that's the long and the short of it so um you can't have good clinical practice if you don't have a full team that's just like the day of the vet you know, doing a spay by himself uh, with no gas anesthetic is gone. It's over. It's history. And, you know, in order for us to continue to progress, we need nurses. And the nurses, unfortunately, mm -hmm. in Ireland, collectively are treated very badly. They're paid mm -hmm. very poorly for people with a degree. Mm -hmm. um, their starting wage is often little more than minimum wage. Like, it's something I feel very strongly about, but I really just don't know what to do. <laughs> like there's no, it's very hard how to change it. Um, and look, I do know what to do. Like from a business point of view of what the biggest issue in Ireland is, is a lot of practices aren't utilizing their, their staff properly. So mm -hmm. they are, they have too many vets employed and vets doing menial mm -hmm. things that nurses should be doing. Mm -hmm. And then nurses are doing things that nursing assistants or animal care assistance should be doing does that make sense yeah totally, so that's yeah. where the problem really lies yeah so what that's why then the, the practice are saying well i can't afford to pay a nurse what they're entitled to and it's like well you're not she's not doing a nurse's job so if they if you you know have two vets like your nurses should always your number of nurses should always outweigh your number of vets and the opposite is true in ireland yeah but that can work really well you know i i'm so lucky to work in so i work in um referral practice in in the northeast of england but there's there it's like a proper pyramid you know so there are very f few vets relative to all the nurses and actually practically I do very little on a day-to-day -day basis as far as I hand a patient to a team of nurses who do everything and I just write it down in a bit of paper and that's it and they do everything that the and so they are practically as far as so many different things so much better than me and and, and they get job satisfaction because they're doing their job so that's the way it is in our practice like we only have one nurse at the moment but we're a very small team like we're five in total and um and, and laura is great and she does what a, a nurse does. so like that you know she she worked acts on behalf of the vets so she, you say 
you come in and you do your rounds and you see everything. Then you say, this is what we're going to do with this today. And then she does it like the vet is not there hanging a bag of fluids himself. Do you know what I mean? Like, or at least they shouldn't be like, that's insane. And I suppose for me, it's probably different because I started uh, when I finished my nursing training, I, I started working in referral equine practice. So I went from learning at like a, you know, a standard where there was a tier and there was interns and there was residents and there was um, surgeons and there was lots of nurses and there was a head nurse and surgical nurse and ICU nurse, you know, so like, so I saw how it worked well, you know what I mean? And that's what I just knew. And then when I started working in smaller practice, I was like, what's going on here? Who's in charge? <laughs> so you're in charge now. So that's good. So you can you can get us sort it all out. <laughs> yes, yes, I have. So that's yeah. good. Uh, no, I think, but, but that's yeah. I think that's a very, ta- but that's a very tangible, real change that is actually, I think, obviously, I don't know the you know the the profession in Ireland well, but but I think it's a very achievable. No, that and I think you know we have honestly the the apart from we've spoken to so many amazing people in the podcast. We've we have had some of the most amazing vet nurses on, particularly from the Instagram community, who are so inspiring. I can't even begin to tell you, and and are so supportive and lovely and and brilliant. So, um, yeah, no, I think that's um, that's yeah, I think that's a very good um point. Um, so Hazel, what what about you as far as kind of something that you think um you maybe you yourself could change or, or just something that needs to change um, or improve within the profession? Well, it's hard to go after Michelle's point now because that would... <laughs> yeah. It's very good, Michelle. Thank you. Um, so um, I, I totally agree with Michelle as well um, about the vet nurses and we have a fantastic team of nurses in, in my practice, uh, the practice I work in. And I think for me, I think it's the work-life balance for me is the main thing, um, especially in the in the farm animal world. And I think um, I, I hear that things are like my practice now. Finally, the other day, um, introduced a Wednesday off when we work a weekend, um, and it's on a trial basis at the moment. But I think it's working well. And honestly, I'm like a new woman on that Wednesday. I go get my hair done. I got a facial. I just just living my best life and I came back on the Thursday and I was like oh guys that Wednesday off literally made you come back on the Thursday and all the farmers are like who is she and where is she they're well used to me now Scott don't worry um, so all right okay I honestly think if I showed up with no makeup on and no nails and what they'd be like Hazel are you okay are you you know so they're well used to me but I, I do like honestly and that was such a big deal for me and I can only imagine that you know there's there's vets out there with way worse rotas than I am and I just think it needs like this this working every day on the weekend and and working all the nights you need some time because it's exhausting like if you think about it if you work a weekend which a lot of vets do in Ireland that's 13 days in a row working without any time off and that is very very common so for me like in my last practice before I left it, I campaigned for two and a half years to get um, a day in lieu for a weekend. And the week before I handed in my notice, <laughs> um, I got they got they got it. And I remember I got a Snapchat from one of the vets down there and they were living their best life on their day off. And they said, thanks, Hazel. <laughs> and I was like, great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm so happy for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
it's it seems like such a simple thing but it's it's so you know well, it's not just a day off. It's really impactful, actually. It's a day off. I mean, that's exactly what people need. I don't want to. Um, I don't want to be like really sort of. Um, you, I don't want to sort of sort of be stere- stereotyping. But you did speak on the podcast. I just wanted to pick up on that kind of joke we were making about the farmers. But you did, I think, at one stage speak about you sort of rocking up uh, for the first time, and they're like, I mean, who is she, <laughs> and what is she? doing on my farm i don't know and i hate to that kind of fulfills that stereotype of the the typical male vet from the 1900s but i i think we have to be real and say that that is a thing that you rocking up initially they were like holy who the heck like those were two bachelor farmers actually and um yeah they hadn't a clue um, who I was and I they just went along with what I said and then at the end the next two days later they said to my boss who was that girl that you sent out <gasps> our, our vet and oh we kind of assumed she was a vet all right by the end of the prolapse that I put back into the cow <laughs> <laughs> so did you did you just kind of did you just did you just kind of carry on you were like I'm just gonna they just they just were looking at me and I, I asked them can you get a rope for the cow because it was in a loose shed there was no cross or anything can we get a rope on the cow and they were like uh uh what and I was like a rope we'll get a rope on the cow so they did anyway and they did what I asked them to do in the end but um you know that was a funny moment I do get you know and then you get the odd you get the odd moment then where it's not so funny like they just they were just they just didn't know and and I I have had a couple of, of of things not said directly to me but I I hear them coming back through the reception staff and it's it is annoying and it's it's annoying that Mm. it's when it's when you might have put like done everything out of your like everything in your power to you know at the tb test you might have dehorned animals or did lame cows or whatnot and then when they ring up with the sick cow and want, want advice and they're like oh we'll wait for the lads do you know and it's like oh god it is annoying and it's just because and like I work with another female vet as well and and she look we can probably count on our hand how many times it's happened to us and then honestly the 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 women that have gone before us in large animal practice have Uh, paved the way like honestly they've been they we had an easy time compared to them and we you know I can only thank them for that and in fairness it's very very few very very few yeah but I I do enjoy Proving them wrong as well. You know those ones. Yes. I do enjoy that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. So one of the things that I love about your, the words that describe what Vet Space Island is, one of them is inspire, which is always a, it's a good word, isn't it? So I, we also do some sort of questions that we ask on each episode. So I wondered, uh, Michelle, if you could tell us who inspires you. Oh my God. So many people. Um, who inspires me? I'm going to start from currently and then maybe work back, but I won't go on too long. Um, Hazel, number one, big time. Oh. Like I would look at her Instagram someday and she's out in the lashing piss and rain, <laughs> testing cows and calving cows and doing stuff. And I just think she needs a medal, like a medal or a trophy or something like just, just couldn't pay me enough money to do it. Um, so, and she's brilliant and she does it all with a smile on her face and she's, so good and she's got so much time for everyone and she's brilliant so hazel number one um my boss number two maraid she's brilliant she's just 
she's got such a great mentality she's got a great mindset she's you know has created the first fear-free completely fear-free event companion animal practice yeah. in ireland um and it's fantastic and it's something that we're all really proud of and you know when you walk in there it's not meant to be like a veterinary practice and it doesn't feel like a veterinary practice and it's lovely and there's running water sounds and ambient music and yeah so it's fantastic and she's so progressive and she's always thinking you know what can we do to be mm. better um which is what i like um and then oh my god i don't know so many people you can keep, I, go- you can keep going if you like you can like honestly there's no limitation here you can- well, one person i suppose who really inspired me when i started out in veterinary was a lady called noreen galvin and she's a european equine internal medicine specialist and i worked with her in uh neonatal icu when i worked in a in the hospital and then i subsequently went to work for her then later in practice and i just always felt like she was just so brilliant of you know just a brilliant person she's always just so independent like you know when you just learn everything from someone when you're so young like um so I just always felt like she taught me I suppose the I might say to her this is a real simple thing that I've like the x-ray machine's not working and she'd be like why not and I'm like I don't know not sure and then she'll go okay let's fix it and then I used to always feel stupid for not trying to fix it myself but like she gave me that there's nothing I can't tackle now. Do you know what I mean? So like, I am that person now to other people. They're like, this isn't working. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure we can fix this now with a bit of luck. We'll apply logic and reason and it'll all be fine. So she definitely is someone who heavily influenced my life. Um, so there you go. That's all I'm three. I'm well, there are three great <laughs> answers. Hazel, I feel bad for you that we started with mm. Michelle and all these questions. Cause you're like, oh God, she's really good at this. Again. Now I have to follow her again. <laughs> so Hazel, yours? Oh, um, well, <laughs> is it? Is it? I can't. Well, Michelle, if I say you now, it's going to look so cliche, isn't it? But I, I do. Well, Michelle, no, no, no. honestly, though, Michelle has given me so much confidence. She's always there at the end of a bad day, and um, I, you know, when when she was on the road with Decra. God, she was plagued by me. Um, now I now I have to stop ringing her, like because I'm like, oh, she actually works in a practice now, and I can't just ring her all the time. And she's such a wise. She always has wise words for me, and she's she's uh, yeah. And like even just to think up of Vet Space Ireland, and you know, to put up with me, she's she's amazing. Um, and she's sending me things on emails. Yeah. She's like, hey, did you see that? And I'm like, uh, yeah, I did. I definitely didn't. Um, so she... <laughs> I, sc- I screenshot the emails and WhatsApp yeah. them to her. I'm like, she'll have some chance of seeing that. <laughs> but Michelle is, has, I only know Michelle since obviously January, 2020. And um, she, I would consider one of my best friends. And it's lovely yeah. to gain a best friend at this stage in life, mm-hmm. um, which is great. Yeah. But um, I think other, other than like, I would have said, women that have paved the way I, I always uh, I started off in practice um as a student and I did a practice with uh, Norma Brady and we had her on the on the podcast and I don't know if she knows this but she definitely inspired me to become a female large animal vet because she was just an absolute ticket you know she she could calve a cow better than any man could calve a cow and uh, she just definitely inspired me and um, she's and she did it 
in the most glamorous way possible as well at the same time and now she's married to one of my farm um, my clients um farmers so I see her on a regular basis and um, she works in industry now but she's just a, a rock a rock of sense and she all we always have great chats and cups of tea and she definitely inspired me to to follow um the veterinary dream I had and also I think Look, my dad would be a big inspiration to me as well. He's a dairy farmer and he is my rock always. And he is a fantastic man, great stockman, great with his cows, great with the dogs, everything. So, yeah, I think they're my top three anyway, I would say. <laughs> Very nice. God, these are great answers. I love that. I love that. I love that. And I love this. Like, I've never thought of it like that. You think about like, you know with with kind of female or women's rights in or you know women's that how that's changed over the years like people getting the right to vote and everything but I love the way you describe it like there's women paving the way every day in so many different ways it's not about necessarily the things you would even think about and I just I just love that thinking about that um there's a question that we've just started and we've stolen it off another <laughs> podcast um which I want to ask to you uh ask to you both so um Michelle my question to you is what do you want to be when you grow up <gasps> Oh, that's a really tricky question because I have, I never knew what I wanted to be when I, when I grow up, but I still don't know. Do you know what? I, lads, I just don't know. Like, I really don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Is this kind of like, kind of fantasy what you want to be when you grow up or? Well, exactly. So we've had this question interpreted in so many different ways, right? So it's however you interpret. So I'll I'll give you an example. When we did an event recently when people turned the question around on me and my answer was when I grow up I want to be Taylor Swift right so it can be <laughs> of course he does like. if you want to be Taylor Swift you can do yeah but that's true if I had a choice I would have been Taylor Swift do you know what I mean like that would be my thing that's my jam so you <laughs> ch- whatever you like <laughs> well <laughs> well I think my Taylor Swift would be like Kate Middleton the brilliant dancer in a palace and like having my dogs and my horses and my Lashimo wellies and my, <laughs> and my barber jackets and my Range Rover like that's what I want to be when I grow up. I think that's totally legitimate like that is absolutely rocking that go for it basically Hazel wants to be royal when she grows up <laughs> yes well please thank you goodbye my job out um oh can I just before I ask this sort of last question um, who's allowed to be vet space ireland like is it who's in the club like is it just do i have to be a large animal irish vet to get in the club or can i can i sneak in the side door being a scottish referral vet like what's the deal what's the deal depends on the on the on the bribe that you <laughs> you know revolut uh paypal anyway you know barbara jacket barbara jacket okay <laughs> barbara jackets i would yeah. say that okay. Anything to do with veterinary, um, it doesn't matter where you're from, uh, what type of veterinary you work in, even if you once once were a vet and now you're not a vet, but you still understand veterinary, um, I think welcome to the club. There is uh, no it. prejudice here at all. <laughs> yeah, I love that. No, I love we that. started using the vet family hashtag, which we, we quite like because... Oh As Hazel God. said before, like we, I can't remember who we had on. Oh, I can't, like my brain is melted. We had someone on the podcast recently and they were talking about everybody in the practice, like receptionists and, you know, all the people that work together to like create how the practice works. Mm-hmm. 
And so from then we've created the Fed family hashtag. And I really like it because it is, Fed spaces for everybody. It's for people in industries, vets, nurses, you know, my, everyone. My best friend goes for walks um, with me and she wears a vet space hat every nearly if it's well obviously not maybe not this time of year but she's a speech and language therapist and she wears her vet space hat with pride into the shops I love it and it's brilliant and her and her boyfriend has one as well and you know we're, we're we've got this um hike space uh vet the vet hike space is coming up mm-hmm. first thing we're getting to do post-covid and uh, so just a walk in the woods um and maybe some tea and scones afterwards it's very simple but um I'd say I'd say there'll be an eclectic mix of people at that walk. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm really looking forward to it. I love it. Um, so just just to finish up, um, uh, Michelle, if you were to do, if you were to do it all again, would you go down that same path? Would you would you take that decision to go to nursing um, and do, doing your nursing qualification? Would you do it again? Yeah, I would because I think um, learning, like working as I did and working with the people I first started working with, I was so lucky because they taught me everything I know in life, but not just in veterinary. Like when you're really young, I'm a great woman in a crisis and that's all because of the people I worked with and and how I was trained, you know, and and I just think it it has given me a great outlook in life. And no, I, I wouldn't change one day. But I mean, I probably had a little bit too much crack in my 20s, you know. <laughs> but I mean. You can't have too much crack in your 20s. I mean, I'm not really regretting that. I mean, I, I do look at some of my friends of my age and they're like married with houses and kids and all the grown-up stuff and I'm like oh it's overrated it's overrated (laughs) yeah and you know what I really do feel like it is overrated and I am quite glad that I had all that crack but maybe I probably had just a little bit too much crack never I was mad for the crack (laughs) so Hazel if you were to do if you were to do it all again would you marry Prince William (laughs) yeah like I was in England I don't know why we didn't meet I think (laughs) because he was scared (laughs) He's like that Irish girl is back outside the palace again. Need to remove her. <laughs> but I remember, I yeah, no, I would have, I would have tracked him down. But I think he was with Kate when I was when I was there, and I actually had a friend in college who knew Kate, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is my way in <laughs> through the girlfriend. I thought I'd meet Harry or something. I don't know, but anyway, didn't happen. I'm in Ireland. I have a lovely boyfriend. Very happy. Good. Um, so I would so I would have gone to England I would have done veterinary I'm very glad that I traveled and went and made all my friends I didn't you know it was it was daunting at the time I'm very glad I did it it taught me a lot um and then look I probably um I'm very happy with where I am now and everything but there was there was rough rough bits along the road with jobs and things like that and you know bad days and, and good days but I think generally I would have done the same um, I might have stayed in England a little bit longer post-graduating because I do feel um, that well even the UK not just England but I, I would have just I, w- I just feel like that maybe there was a slightly more um, established new grad system at the mm-hmm. time Ireland has caught up now but I feel again that badge of honour thing kind of came in um, I, I even found I was doing it a bit like Oh, when I was a new grad, and that was eight years ago, mm. I was just sent out and um, and mm. to do a section. Mm. Just did it, like, just did you know. It. And yeah. I had to actually th- through vet space. I've learned 
that that's not a good way to think and I need yeah. to you know change and yeah. I have I've changed my mindset an awful lot since starting so um no I'm very very happy uh, with the with the path that I've taken and um yeah I would have I would have actually had more crack in my 20s see Michelle right yeah mm-hmm. I would have gone out more we should have gone out more in college I was a bit of a swat <laughs> Listen, Car- Karen and I will come over. We we'll, let's go out. I mean, let's do it. Let's go out yeah. more. We'll, we'll show you how we did it in our twenties, what we guys. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> listen. What um, what a joy actually to chat to you both. What, honestly, I've absolutely loved that, and that was such a pleasure to speak to you both. And you're both very inspiring people. I, I don't know if you know that, but I'm here to tell you. So, um, and what I think what you're doing honestly is brilliant. I love your podcast. I love the fact that you're <laughs> flying by the seat of your pants on a wing and a prayer, whatever you said the other in the other episode. I, I think that actually is the best part about it because I think it is authentic and I think <laughs> you both come across so well. So I just, yeah. So thank you uh, for coming on today and thank you for everything that you're both Aww. doing. Thank you so much, Scott. Keep up the thank good work. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, and your guys are doing a great job Thank as well. Your you. whole Thank thing you. is fantastic. Like, I wish we had something similar someday. Oh, you. But if Karen is dispensable, we will happily take her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much to Michelle and Hazel for chatting today. We're moving on to our clinical segment now where we're going into the second part of our discussion about the investigation and management of portosystemic shunts. We pick up the conversation with the amazing Rob White where we're starting to chat about decision-making regarding surgical procedures that might help to correct these vascular abnormalities. You've obviously spoken to your owners about a decision between, you know, here you are, do you want to go ahead with surgery? As far as the type of surgery that you do for the most, you know, the most common extrahepatic post-systemic shunts, does that ever vary or are you, I'm putting words in your mouth, amyloid constrictors, is that what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I have a preferred way of doing it, which like all these things I think comes about from things you've done in the past and things that have worked and things that haven't worked. So there's an experience side to it. I, I, I mean, realistically within the UK for, for extra hepatic shunts, there are probably three ways that people have managed them over the years. Um, one way is, is one group particularly uh, um, and the rest are probably you know, more variable. So the, the, the two sort of common ways that people have used, one is a thing called an amyloid constrictor. And an amyloid constrictor is basically uh, uh, a, a ring of metal with a little um, hole in one side. So it looks like a C shape, uh, the letter C shape. And inside it in the ring is um, this material um, called casein which is a, a, a milk protein derivative and it's hydroscopic. So it absorbs fluid. And if it's encased in this metal ring, as it absorbs the fluid, its central lumen becomes narrower. So if you put it round a vessel, it theoretically closes the vessel as, as, as it absorbs fluid. So that's how it was first thought to work. But actually in reality, the casein acts as a foreign body. And so you get a fibrosis response around it. And that's probably the main reason why it produces the shunt occlusion that we see. So, so that's one uh, method that's used and you will get some people that will use that routinely and that's, that's their, 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 their preferred route. 
The second, I think, is a cellophane band, and, and cellophane is cellulose, and, and it used to be more commonly available on lots of packaging. And so, you know, you'll still hear people talk about, um, uh, you know, cigarette packets and sweet packets and, you know, quality streets used to come in cellophane. But nowadays, lots of cellophane that you think you're using this cellophane isn't cellophane. It, 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 it's, it's a polypropylene uh, material, which is relatively inert. I have to say, of the years, um, I've always been able to get hold of cellophane. And there used to be a, a factory, I think there still is a factory um, up in Carlisle that, that manufactured it. So I could always get hold of what I always knew was medical grade cellophane. It's caused a lot of problems because lots of publications over the years on the use of cellophane almost certainly haven't been using cellophane. Um, and so often it's now called a clear plastic film rather than, than cellophane because of that. And so people, yeah, there's, there's, it's meant that a lot of people haven't gone down the cellophane route. They prefer to use amyloid constrictors. So it's contentious. I have both, but, but the majority of the time I use cellophane because for me, in my hands, it works. Um, uh, and there's also some debate as to how effective cellophane is in cats compared to dogs. But again, in, in my hands, I find it's effective in cats and in dogs. So I, I like cellophane. I've used it a long time and, and that's, that's what I'll have. But I also have, uh, you know, the full range of the amyloid constrictor rings if I come across a case where I think it might be more applicable to use that. And then the last method... Uh, that, that a group have used is to just put a polypropylene suture around the shunt and partially close it. Um, and in doing that, they then went back into the second surgery about a month or six weeks later uh, on the assumption that there might have been some further development of the intrapatic portal vasculature, which meant they then could close the shunt down. So for me, I'll go in, I'll have a look. I'll If I can close the shunt fully at that first surgery, I will do. But with these um, things like cellophane and amyloid rings, you can be more confident of not having to close the shunt completely at the first surgery, which produces a degree of safety to the procedure. Because if you close the shunt, make it too narrow too quickly, it can develop portal hypertension. And if it develops portal hypertension, that can be uh, something that will lead quite quite quickly lead to the loss of the patient. So it's there's an art form to that. There's no doubt about it. It's not completely straightforward. And people have talked about measuring portal pressures at the time of surgery, um, but it's actually quite an inaccurate art form. Uh, you know, it's not very really scientific. And so with the use of things like cellophane, um, I find that. Um, and I, I'm, I'm less concerned about the development of portal hypertension. Do worry about it. But most of the shunts that I operate on will be partially closed. They will have a degree of, 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 of so-called attenuation applied to them. And that's to try and put the portal pressure up a little bit, at least, um, which will change the flow dynamics in the shunting vessel and in the portal vasculature, which hopefully will lead to the development uh, of an improved intrapatic portal vasculature. I hope that sort of in a roundabout way answers your question. Yeah, well, just a couple of things just to pick up on. So you, you'll you be um, horrified to hear that actually when I worked, when I first graduated and worked at the PDSA, we did, um, with a more much more experienced surgeon than me, clearly, um, did close or uh, attempt to attenuate a portal systemic shunt with the, top, with the cellophane off a Lambert and Butler 
uh, cigarette packet, which is obviously now we know not the way to go. So I don't recommend that people do that. Um, <laughs> secondly, you talk about assessing for portal hypertension. So do you always attempt to fully occlude the vessel at the time of surgery? And if you do, I think, which I think you said, how are you how are you then making an assessment of portal hypertension? Yeah, I think this to some degree comes down to again the facilities that you may have access to. So for me, uh, the gold standard facilities would be to have intraoperative fluoroscopy. So that's basically uh, X-rays that produce real-time moving images, and you may have seen them on on the telly with you know people having um, stents put into to their hearts and things like that. It allows you to take a, a a, a radiographic image that is a movie of, of the contrast being injected. And so if you've got access to that, what I'll commonly do is go in, find the shunt, I'll put a ligature around it of polypropylene, and then I'll make a vascular snare out of that. So I'll put a little bit of drip tubing around the, uh, uh, the two lengths of the, of the uh, polypropylene, then I can temporarily completely close the shunt Prior to doing that, I'll put a catheter, a cannula, into a jejunal vein so I can, one, inject contrast into that. So I can do a, a portavenogram in, intraoperatively. Um, uh, and also, because that catheter is the, the jejunal vein, when I've temporarily closed the shunt, I can not only do a, a further portavenogram, which will highlight that I've found the shunt, definitely got the right vessel. Definitely there isn't a second shunt available. And it will also give me information about the development of the intrapatic portal vasculature. But not only that, I can then use that cannula uh, to uh, at least eyeball the portal pressure. So I can lift the catheter up and see when the meniscus stops um, producing blood and get a rough idea of the portal pressure. So I can... Um, although I don't generally measure it accurately with a manometer, I can at least get an idea of what that portal pressure is. But most of the time, I guess, for the portal pressure, we're looking at things like the pancreas and seeing how that copes when we've done, done the temporary full occlusion. So, so when we do fully occlude it, it's temporary temporary measure. If the animal copes with it and we don't see any change in the anaesthetic parameters, blood pressure, um, central venous pressure if we're measuring it um, and the anaesthetist is happy and the respiratory rate doesn't change the, the heart rate doesn't change and we've not got any indications of portal pressure uh, uh, portal hypertension visually within the abdomen or, or within the cannula that I've just um, spoken about I might then consider completely ligating the shunt with the polypropylene sutures that I've used to, to, to encircle it if there's any doubt at that point I would make a decision to do a partial closure with you know the, either the cellophane or, or with the amyloid constrictor. Okay, so I think yeah, so so you've made obviously um, you've made out the decision about um, what you're how you're going to attenuate and and let's and hopefully not develop any problems with portal hypertension at the time. As far as that moving on to that kind of post um, surgery sort of phase. What what are you particularly looking out for in that first twenty four hours post uh, surgical attenuation or partial attenuation? Yeah, the, the perfect case for me is the case that wakes up and, and and wakes up fairly quickly. So nowadays we generally pre pre medicate them with just low dose um, methadone, 
um, and then they'll get a propofol induction and then they're going to be maintained on, on either fluorine um, uh, and oxygen. I guess, you know, you could use sevoflurane, but I don't think there's any great advantage to doing that in terms of the rapidity of recovery. Um, and then we will maintain them from an analgesic point of view on low dose methadone, but we'll just keep a very close eye on that. And we may not you know, religiously give it every four to six hours. We, we, we may have a look at the patient after four hours and see, see if we think it you know, needs to have some more and how much it needs to have. So we monitor them quite closely from that point of view. And then the ideal patient, if we've done the operation in the morning, is wide awake and wants to eat and will eat. The ones that I worry about are the ones that are really slow to recover and are very reluctant to eat and start to show signs of abdominal discomfort, a little bit of tenseness to the animal, it may be even a little bit of swelling of the, of, of the abdomen. And they're a bit, a bit concerning that we might have portal hypertension. But to be fair, we don't see that very often because of the way that we've closed the shunt and then the other thing that we're, we're always really wary of is the development of neurological abnormalities. And so all, all the sort of cases that we see can do it. So, so dogs can do it, um, but cats especially uh, are prone to developing post-attenuation uh, abnormal neurological behaviour of which the sort of worst of that can be, can be full-on um, seizures. But the cats will commonly develop tremor and, and, and they'll develop muscular tremors and they may uh, develop fairly quickly apparent blindness um, and they are you know really quite worrying signs because if they can't be controlled um, they, the animal could well go on and develop seizure activity which is then going to be even more difficult to control and how to control those is actually really poorly understood and so um, we'll often um, end up giving them some phenobarbitone, which some people would frown upon, because the problem with the phenobarbitone is to get it to a level of a, a sort of anti-seizuring medication um, is probably going to be quite a high dose for the liver. So you may find that you look it up in a BSAVA formula and it may say anti-seizuring dose, I don't know, 10 to 15 milligrams per kilogram. We may be giving it at one milligram per kilogram. And it may actually be that it's the sedative effect that's calming everything down. Sometimes we might give them another little bit of propofol just to keep them quieter. Um, uh, and sometimes we may well um, you know, use some, some, something like a benzodiazepine, you know, diazepam or something along those lines, midazolam. But it, it, the, it, for me, there's no one set protocol I have for that. It's really variable and it's almost a sort of suck it and see type, type, type situation. You're, you're, just, you're just worried because you know full well that that case could go on and develop seizures. I've had two recently. One did uh, absolutely that. They both had exactly the same tremors. They had tremors before surgery um, and, and looked very twitchy and, we, and they always worry me in cats. One of them had tremors post-operatively, went on and developed full-blown seizures within 24 hours despite what we were doing. And that cat unfortunately was put to sleep. And then about two weeks later, I had another cat that did exactly the same, um, that I had one dose of phenobarbitone and never looked back. So uh, it, it's really difficult to know. It's really difficult to know why they develop it. You know, uh, we, I don't think we have, an, we have a handle on that. Um, you know, is it because we're dropping the toxin load because they've had surgery and, and, and their liver's starting to do a bit more? I'm not sure it's a bit quick for that. Um, and some of these cats, they can do these, even if you've not attenuated the shunt in any way or form at all, 
they'll still develop post post surgery um, seizure like activity. Do see it in dogs, but fortunately, it's less frequent in dogs. Yeah, and yeah. it's yeah. I think it's 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 very unpredictable, and certainly from my point of view, you know, sometimes looking after these cases post surgery. I think the only other thing I would say is I'm always very quick to measure the things that are measurable. So always making sure to measure simple things like blood glucose and and because we know that can be a, sometimes a bit all over the place in these cases, making sure that we're measuring electrolytes because sometimes they can just do worse if their electrolytes are not 100%, you know. So, but, but again, it's all, it, I think it is like you say, there isn't really a set protocol, particularly from the neurological side of things. I know some people will still use um, levetiracetam afterwards uh, in combination with these other things as well. But I think, as you say, it's it's not uh, it's not well determined at all. Um, and it's interesting, isn't it, how you said you know that one cat did very badly, and I you know in the other cat you know one dose of phenobarbital and was actually totally you know fine. So, and I'm not sure that there's any way of predicting that no. really, is there? And you're right. I mean, I I would certainly not uh, be against giving it some um, uh, levetiracetam postoperative at that point. You know, from my point of view, uh, I. I you can just get to a situation where you'll try anything because you know that if it develops full on seizures, you've mm -hmm. got a real problem. No, absolutely. Um, I wonder, um, just actually, I was, I wanted, I want to talk about intrahepatic shunts. I, I just, one of the things that I wanted to sort of highlight that I think yeah. often owners are particularly bad at understanding is that the, and this is all part of the way we communicate with them, obviously, but, but surgery is not, um, like, you know, uh, the quick fix as in the animal still needs to be medically managed as it was before for a period of time afterwards um and i don't know again is there a kind of do you have a kind of standard approach to that as far as how you then send them home after the surgery yeah i probably do um i guess it's not necessarily again based on anything completely scientific so i'll probably send well i will send my cases home on medical management so they'll go home the majority of them will go home with about a two-week course or continuation of the antibiotic. So whatever antibiotic they were on before, that's what they've done. It's normally going to be uh, clavulant amoxicillin. I'll probably suggest that they stay on lactulose for about three weeks, three to four weeks. And whatever diet they were on before they came in, if they were happy on that diet, that's probably the diet that I'll keep them on. And if they are doing clinically well and their signs of, of hepatic encephalopathy are no longer present... Um, as that period of recovery goes on, um, I'll say carry on in that vein. And so it may be that if you've got a case that's doing very well by four weeks postoperatively, it's off antibiotics, it's off lactulose syrup, um, and it, I mean, it may be then that they're going to think about reintroducing a more normal diet. If the case isn't doing that and it's still showing signs of hepatic encephalopathy as you wean it off those treatments, um, I'll suggest that it stays on probably at the very least on the lactulose and then I'll normally get the clients or um, to, to, to or I'll ask the vets, the referring vets um, and the clients to make an appointment to have blood work repeated, including pre and post bundled bile acids three months postoperatively. And very commonly, those results are still abnormal. And then if the dog is, or cat is still doing very well, it, it will stay off medical management. Um, and then I'll ask them to repeat the blood work again six months later so nine months post-operatively and i hope at that point things might be normal not always by by any means but the, but, the, but that time scale for for resolution of the bile acids 
can take quite a long time. And for me, um, I guess surgically, what I'm trying to achieve, especially with the extrapatic shunts, is normalization. But there are certainly, you know, plenty, you know, there are publications out there, not plenty, but there are publications out there that, that will clearly state that, that, you know, lots of these cases will continue to have raised bile acids in the post-operative period, despite the fact that you might have what appears to be a completely normal animal. So um, it's, it's a bit difficult to know exactly what's going on with them. And some of them will have shunting at the microvascular level, which may be an indication as to, you know, that they're still going to have raised bile acids. It may be a you know, reason why they don't necessarily all do well. So you can have animals that you can document that they've got closure of the shunt and haven't developed multiple acquired shunts, um, but they've still got shunting going on. And probably those cases have got uh, a, a microvascular uh, portal vein uh, hyperplasia problem within the liver itself. And I guess for me, that's that's common in things like Yorkshire Terriers, and I'll always warn owners of that before surgery. So it's not it's not ex, it's not an exact sort of art form uh, science. It's, it's more of an art form, I'm afraid. Yeah, the art of it, the art of veterinary medicine. I think we see. <laughs> so, um, I wonder, um, just to not to not to to misrepresent the intrahepatic shunts in this world, um. Obviously, they are less common overall than the extrahepatics that we see, and 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 we we typically again, but not always, we see them more typically in uh, larger breed dogs. And um, what what are the kind of key aspects of the differences in the management of intrahepatic portosystemic shunts? Yeah, I guess I guess again, this is slightly contentious and, and slightly based maybe on the person that you see. So I've I've commonly operated on these with open surgery and that's sort of what I've done in, in, in my life and, and you know remember when we first started to see intrapatic shunts and most people would have sort of said well they're inoperable because they're within the liver but it became apparent reasonably quickly that a number of these shunts represented uh, a persistence of the patent ductus venosum and they actually could be located almost outside the liver at the very front just as that vessel was communicating with the um, post-hepatic caudal vena cava and they actually pr proved relatively straightforward to isolate surgically uh, and be able to then deal with them in a similar way to how you would have dealt with an extrapatic shunt so those would be coming off the left um, intrapatic branch of the portal vein and then there's a the second sort of major group that come off the right intrapatic uh, portal vein branch, and they truly are intrapatic. They run they run through the um, right lateral and right medial lobes of the liver and are much more difficult to dissect out. But there are ways that can, that can be done, and I guess you know it, it depends a bit on when you did your training and I guess who trained you as to whether you may or may not be comfortable attempting that surgery, but. Within that, uh, in the last sort of 10 years or so, um, with the advent of minimal invasive surgery, and again, the, the, you know, the more common um, presence of, of things like fluoroscopic machines uh, to, to be able to image uh, these cases, people have started to look at um, what's called coil embolization. And so they, they uh, can put in a stent which goes into the vena cava um, at the site where the 
protosystemic shunt enters the vena cava. So this could be within the liver or just cranial to the liver in that post-hepatic um, caudal vena cava. And that stent has got obviously holes in it because it's a meshed stent. And then if you then can visualize that uh, with your fluoroscopy machine, you can see catheters going down, normally catheterized through the um, one of the uh, external jugular veins in the neck. You can then pass a catheter through that, that stent, through the mesh of that stent and put the catheter within the shunting vessel itself and then deposit uh, little coils that are embolic coils. They've got, um, they, look, they look a bit hairy, basically, if you see one um, before it's been placed. And they're thrombogenic. So um, well, as soon as it's been placed, it produces um, um, a thrombus. And therefore, each time you put one in, it's narrowing the shunt slightly further, slightly more. And you can put catheters in so you can measure portal pressure. In those cases, it probably is very important to be measuring portal pressure as you're um, deploying the stents because you can't afford to put too many in because if you do, you can end up with portal hypertension and you can't remove them. So basically, you're looking for a change in portal pressure um, and an increase, probably no more than 10 to 15 um, centimetres of, 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 of water pressure. Um, and at that point, you say, well, I've put enough of those in. Um, you can step away and hopefully what you've done is you're then going to again change the flow mechanics and encourage the liver intrahepatic portal vascular to develop. But very commonly with coil embolization, the shunt doesn't go on to close. And so you then judge on whether it needs another surgical procedure based on how it does clinically, how the case does clinically. And so if the, if the animal continues to have encephalopathic signs, you might advocate that it has another procedure where more coils are placed to try and narrow the shunt further, or if the animal doesn't show encephalopathic clinical signs off medical management, you may then say, well, that's a successful outcome. I don't need to place any more coils. So it depends a bit on who you see, because at this point, a lot of these cases may actually be dealt with by medics. And so it may not come to a surgeon. It may go to somebody who, whose who's skill um, set is interventional radiography um, and they may be a non-surgeon and that's maybe what 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 they do and so you can end up in a situation like that or you could end up going to a center where they don't have coil embolization facilities and they're more likely to push you into open surgery or you could go to a center where they have both capabilities and, and there may be more of a discussion around how risk averse you are i think the coil embolization the risks of performing that procedure are relatively low. Open surgery, the risks of potentially having a catastrophic problem at the time of surgery, normally blood loss, can be quite high and will certainly depend on the surgeon that you see. So, it, you know, there's pros and cons. The coil embolization, we normally wouldn't perform on an animal until it's skeletally mature, or at least the vena cava has, has achieved an adult size, because if you put the wrong size stent in the vena cava. So let's say you operated on a young dog and it grew, you might find that the stent that you placed suddenly ends up being too small and that can then migrate um, up towards the heart, which wouldn't be a very good thing. So we normally have to wait until it's reached a size where we can pick the size stent to go into the vena cava. It's going to stay put and not move. So you can make an argument that that dog's got to wait maybe 
six months or so from diagnosis before you can operate on it with coil embolization. Whereas if you were to operate on it with open surgery, you could do it much younger in age. Does that make a difference? We don't have any evidence one way or the other realistically at the present time to say whether one's better than the other from that point of view. I think though it's, um, I suppose it's, you know, it's always good to have, you know, I think the coil embolization is becoming, you know, in in some centres a relatively well established uh, procedure, and and I think the 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 pro is always the, the ability to offer options. I think um, in these cases, but I think as with everything, there's there's pros and cons to both, uh, so you know both um, uh, options. I think, and um, but I think you know certainly the centre I work in, we we do have that option to offer both, and that is always nice, I suppose, to and it gives the medics something to do, <laughs> Rob. <laughs> <laughs> i think it gives us something back that we can that we can yeah. pot- potentially fix who knows and um, one of the things i wanted to mention actually interestingly from a medical point of view I'd, um one of the things that we do and i don't know whether this is still uh, how well we understand this but longer term in the intrahepatic systemic shunts we do tend to um longer term manage them with gastroprotectin such as omeprazole um they are we think more prone maybe don't understand completely why to uh gastrointestinal bleeding or ulceration and so um i think correct me if i'm wrong the feeling is that we would still uh, manage those with omeprazole more much more readily than we would the extra yeah i think i think for me most of the intrapatic shunts i operate on they'll either be on omeprazole before i operate on them or they'll go on to omeprazole post-operatively and i can sort of understand it post-operative if if lee if you've increased the portal pressure because i think that might have an effect on what's going on in the stomach vasculature i'm not quite sure i understand how it all works longer term and whether you need to take them on long term. For me, I guess they, they they generally won't stay on it longer term. They might stay on, on it for uh, 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 three or four weeks, maybe post-operatively with the intrapatics. I would say it's not always the case, but it's probably more commonly the case now than, than it would have been. And I've certainly seen cases over my years where um, they've had a, a gastric ulceration and, 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 and you know died from that post-operatively. Um, and, you know, this would be years ago when we didn't really understand what was going on and why so i would agree yeah most of the cases i get would go on to a mepsol from the intrapatics i would say pretty well i don't do it with the extrapatics i don't know whether you do but i don't no, with the extrapatics no. no absolutely yeah. not no i no no i think it yes really just with the 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 intrahepatic shunts i think routinely um but just a sort of interesting little i suppose quirk a difference between the the the, the two what do you um just as a kind of just to round up then I think obviously we you clearly over your career which is really interesting actually to have that reflection where you started out actually seeing some of the you know these cases were not routine in any sort of way shape or form but in many ways they're now part of your I'm sure your routine work you know to do these sorts of cases do you think what what's the future then do you think there's more to come or do you think we've have we pretty much got to the the level where we manage these cases very well or i mean i think for me that the, the thing that would be really nice to understand with them is is why they get these post-operative seizures and is there anything that you know uh, what is it that causes that why do we see it is it a drop in the toxin load or, or, or you know what what's the mechanism behind it and i think we're just a long way off that uh, and you can think of ways that we could possibly look at those things experimentally but it would be very experimental 
um, you know, it'd be lovely to be able to measure the toxins in the you know, um, CSF, um, um, you know, at the time of surgery and post-operatively and see what's happening to things like the ammonia and how quickly those things change. But, you know, that would be a very experimental thing to do. It's not something that we can do clinically. I think that, you know, that, that to me is one of the big areas. You know, I say to cat owners that there's a, there's a chance that the cat's going to have, you know, life-threatening uh, seizures in, in 10 to 15 percent of them. And that's enough to put cat owners off operating on cats. Um, uh, and, and it'd be just nice to know why that's the case. And why is that different in cats to dogs? Dogs, I'll say, probably less than 5 percent. And, I, you know, it does happen. And every now and again, it completely catches you out with a dog. No idea it was going to happen. Nothing, nothing to suggest it was going to happen. And then, wham, they go, they get, you know, full-on seizures post-operative. Very difficult to manage. Very, very expensive to manage. Often owners sort of give up on managing them because it's just costing too much money with such a, you know, potentially poor outcome. So there's that aspect to it, I guess. I mean, surgically, I still think we don't really know. Uh, I mean, I think I, I feel I, I, I know, I know, and I've got an idea, right? But we don't really know whether we need to attenuate the shunt at the time of surgery or whether we can put something around it that's going to produce closure very slowly. For me, I think we need to change the flow mechanics. So for me, part of the surgical procedure is to, to partially close the shunt, to change the flow mechanics um, through the portal vasculature to, to encourage you know, what we call preferential flow. And that's one of the mechanisms that then opens up the liver. What else don't we know very well? Liver biopsies. You know, we biopsy these livers, but the information that we get back doesn't really change anything um, and doesn't really make any difference to, to your ability to decide whether the case is going to do well or not do well. We don't seem to have any test that will predict which animal is going to go on to be able to develop a normal intrahepatic portal vasculature and which animals stubborn, stubbornly not going to do that. And you'd really like to have thought that, you know, we could take a liver biopsy and the pathologist could tell us some information that would allow us to predict you know, which of those things was going to occur. So I guess those, those would be things that, you know, would be nice to think we might, we might make advances on in the future. Um, but, um, you know, how we go about that, I think, is, is less easy to, you know, to be able to, to give you some insight into that i'm afraid it's going to take a greater man than me to do that <laughs> i think you've i think you've done enough you've, you've contributed we can see so don't be too hard on yourself um well listen i uh honestly thank you so i think you know we, we could talk for forever but um i think what a really useful kind of overview for people to understand and particularly from your own vast experience of these cases you know understand some of these um, challenges and some of the things we do and you know there's always more to know in medicine and particularly in veterinary medicine so um, there may be people listening that will they'll carry the baton forward <laughs> as far as some of these things but uh, but thank you so much again for chatting it really has been uh, a great pleasure and a, a great honour for us to have you uh, on the podcast so thank you very much. Well it's been a great pleasure to, to be here and to be given the opportunity to talk about something that's certainly very close to my heart so thank you very much scott it's been um, a, a real enjoyment great pleasure thank you massive thank you again to the amazing michelle and hazel and rob for chatting to us thank you to all of you for listening as always your support is massively 
appreciated, please head over to our website, which is www.vtx-cpd.com to learn all things VTX. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Bye.